Welcome to this roundup. Digital communication is at the core of the digital global age. As the digital global age drives the need for more data, more information, and more bandwidth, the telecommunication industry remains of crucial importance to each nation, its government, industries, organizations, academia, and individuals, in short referred to as NGIOAI, and to the human society. The health, advances, and security of this industry affects not only each nation's economy, but in many ways, the very existence of the digital global age and the coming tomorrow of space age. Looking at communication, nations have come a long way from smoke signals and drums to a telecommunication industry today, which uses electromagnetic waves and electronic transmitters to connect people, processes, talent, opportunity, resources, and so much more across nations. It is because of this industry that telephone, television, radio, computers, satellites, and Internet of Things now allow the communication to travel across NGIOA in cyberspace, geospace, and space, in short referred to as CGS, and gets received almost instantly by the recipient. This industry has produced some of the most incredible fundamental technological changes in the history of humankind, and all within perhaps little less than two centuries. It is because of this industry that we see the critical process of digitization happening across each and every entity across NGIOA today. Even today, this industry is making great advances and innovations in all sectors, from wireless technology to internet, satellite communications, and more. And because of the advances in information, communication, and digitization technology, there is widespread digital disruption happening across NGIOA. This is forcing even the telecommunication industry itself to invest heavily in innovation and in the development of necessary technology for today and the coming tomorrow. To understand the telecom industry, digital communication, its current state and expected advances, I'm delighted to welcome Professor Misha Dollar from United Kingdom. Professor Misha heads the Center of Telecom Research, is Chair and Professor at King's College London, a Fellow and Distinguished Lecturer IEEE, Board of Directors, World Sensing, Editor-in-Chief, EDT and IoT, and a great pianist. Welcome, Professor Misha. We are delighted to have you on Risk Roundup. Thank you. Wonderful. So uh, let's start with a very fundamental question. Digital communications, where are we and where are we going? What is shaping the future of digital communication? So digital is undergoing a very rapid transformation and uh, maybe the most significant thing which digital has achieved today is, is to decouple literally the physical world from everything which is now the opportunity world, right? So think of the internet maybe 20 years back. Um, the internet back then was nothing else but ethernet cables and routers. Yeah, you remember the days we were mounting, literally nailing ethernet cables to the walls. That was the internet back then. Go out into the street now in the United States, United Kingdom, anywhere on the planet and ask the kids, what's the internet? They will tell you everything but, you know, cables and routers. They will talk about Twitter. They will talk about Snapchat, you know, Facebook. So literally, the dig digital has allowed to decouple that physical element from the opportunity element. 
And uh, with that, it has really changed also our identity, if you think about it, okay? So 20 years ago, uh, our identity was very physical. It was really an identity of the passport, okay? Today, my identity is a password, okay? If I lose my passport today, I'm not worried. I'm really worried if I lose my password or one of my many passwords. So that shift of identity is actually continuing aggressively and we will see what I call this atomization of identity over the next decades to come. So we will have machines coming in, AI comes in, robots come in, etc. So we will need to start to co-live and co-exist essentially with forms of digital and mechanical forms we have not been exposed to to date. That is so very true, and you're absolutely right about it. It's a whole new world. Now, how important is telecommunication industry to not only our current digital global age, but to the coming tomorrow of space age? Because with the advances of AI and robotics and all that that we are seeing, we are bound to be in the space age in probably, you know, next uh, couple of uh, decades, I would say. How important you see the role of telecommunication industry for that to happen? Yes, so telecom plays a stronger and stronger role really in the end-to-end -end connectivity. Um, maybe 10 years ago, the majority of all our web traffic originated from fixed internet. Um, 2015 was the year when, you know, it was half-half. Half of the traffic was originating from my desktop computer, the other half uh, originated from my, from my smartphone, okay? And that trend will continue. Um, but it will not be a trend where you see traffic only to go for wireless. We clearly need uh, the whole back-end infrastructure. But what we will see is a lot of stabilization in the sense that we will pay a lot of attention to the end-to-end -end transmission capabilities. So it doesn't make, in the future, it will not make sense to have a 10 gigabit per second optical to your home if you don't have a 10 gigabit per second wireless connectivity which is essentially your last meet of Ethernet cable in your home or in your road or in your city or in your spaceship or train or car whatever you mentioned so therefore you know the uh, the wired and wireless world um, will need to start to play a much stronger role in terms of integration, uh, you know, convergence of services, convergence of infrastructure, uh, but which only corroborates essentially the importance of telecoms on the on the long term. I see. So you are telling me that the infrastructure, the basic infrastructure of telecommunications, we have. Uh, it seems we have reached a stabilization stage. Is that what am I hearing? No, so it, the, the, the actual requirements and the investment and the deployment will always grow. But what it will stabilize is the ratio between requirements on the, uh, on the optical side and on the wireless side, okay? Which is good for the telecom world. Think about it, 20 years ago, we were, let's say, a luxury item. Mobile phones were a luxury item. They were the Ferraris of, uh, of our world, okay? And today, it's commodity. It's as commodity as an Ethernet cable you have lying uh, at home or connecting your computer, right? So, and that transformation um, will really drive essentially this coexistence between the telecom world and the wired infrastructure world. But telecom will be very, very important and grow 
uh, grow very, very quickly. And the main traffic we will observe over a while is will be video. Okay, so uh, a year ago uh, on my commute in London, I wouldn't see anybody watching, you know, Netflix on the computer or, or BBC or whatever on the iPhone. I mean, and now you see a lot of people watching videos, right? So video traffic is really the major traffic which will go over the internet. Yes, absolutely. No, it makes sense now. Now, it seems that the meaning and nature of telecommunication is fundamentally changing. Today, we, the humans, not only want to hear each other through connected computers and cyberspace, but also want to feel the emotions, sense, and be able to harness a full range of natural modes, including language, gesture, and facial and other body expressions that are hands-free and non-visual and, you know, many, many, you know, different uh, criteria that are, you know, growing. Now, these expectations are changing the very nature of man-machine communication. How is the telecom industry preparing for advances in natural language processing, robotics, artificial intelligence, and, you know, more? Yeah. Good question. So you will realize very quickly is that we need a very, uh, you know, a very, very good infrastructure really to be in place to cater for the uh, very low delay type of applications we have in mind in the future. So therefore, for instance, on the wireless end, the 5G uh, design criteria are not only a long bandwidth anymore. You remember, so 4G, 3G, it was all about getting the data pipe bigger and bigger. Now we are talking about uh, two additional design criteria. So it's uh, we're doing the bandwidth, that's one. Uh, the other one we're working on is to, to being able to attach many more devices so we can scale literally um, in the uh, Internet of Things space, uh, on my mobile phone space, etc. billions if not trillions of devices. And the third one is on criticality and low delay. So suddenly we, we, we hope with 5G we will be able to support very critical applications uh, like a, a remote surgery. Okay, and where you can't have an outage uh, during uh, an eye surgery, it just doesn't work, right? So therefore, 5G needs to be extremely reliable and uh, transmit data packets with a very low delay. And if we do this, we then can start to transmit, uh, you know, very different senses from the typical video and, and, and audio signal. We will be able to transmit touch because touch requires uh, a millisecond delay between action and reaction. And uh, if you have the network in place, suddenly I can literally uh, embrace people remotely. I can have doctors feel patients. I can have Voxel engineers service a car and all that without leaving actually their working place. So that's the future and we're working on that and that's called the tactile internet and uh, that's the next generation in it after the Internet of Things. That would be so amazing to be able to touch someone, you know, yeah. through this. Uh, that would be so amazing. How close are we for the 5G? Um, so 5G in general is still a bit off the road. So we, we, we probably, from a design point of view, will need another two, three, maybe four years. And from an investment point of view, I don't think that technology will be rolled out until 2023, 2024, maybe five. So people talk about an earlier deployment, but these will be trials. So I refer to global uptake of the technology really for consumer and industry, uh, still like some, you know, eight years uh, away from today. 
So which nations are leading in this research on 5G? Is it uh, UK, United States or? Yeah, America? so, you know, designing telecom systems is a very global effort, really. So um, you have ecosystems from all around the world, particularly where we have a strong vendor uh, industry. So we are talking about, uh, you know, we're talking about South Korea, we're talking about Japan, uh, Taiwan, China, we're talking about Sweden, the Nordic countries, the United Kingdom, you know, Germany or the whole, you know, Western Europe. United States is very strong as well. So there are loads of different parties now coming up with innovative solution that has to be passed on to the standards bodies. They have to agree globally. That then has to uh, has to be ratified. We need to build the products. Then the investors need to come along. They need to pay for the deployment. Then we need to deploy it. Then the industry and the consumers need to adopt it. So it's a long road. It's a very global effort. Um, everybody plays a small role in this really important game of puzzles, right? So that's what it is. That is good to know that there is a collective effort and there is a you know close uh, collaboration. That is wonderful. Now, before the emergence of the internet, telecommunications, as we have been talking, had be, had a very narrow focus, and that was only to allow people to communicate at a distance through voice. Now, the telephone has over the years expanded to be more inclusive and it's also going forward like you just were explaining about 5G and what benefits it would bring to the industry and uh, the nations uh, overall. So what are the other changes other than 5G that you see coming in next 10, 20, 50 years? Yeah, so you mean from a, a business point of view or from an experience point of view? Both from innovation as well as business, technical yeah. as well as uh, business. Yeah, so 5G um, will be a, what I see, a transitional generation. It will be the first tele, it's a mobile generation which will be very different to the uh, previous ones. And the reason is because A, I believe that will be the last G we will see. And it's time for this ecosystem, in a sense, to break up in smaller constituents, which I call features. Um, the reason is because you don't see Microsoft, Cisco and Facebook sit together every 10 years and design a new uh, internet, right? Uh, they don't do that because uh, they can innovate in their own respective worlds and therefore this world moves much quicker. So Facebook doesn't take 10 years to come up with the next generation platform, okay? They do it constantly, they work on features, so does Google and everybody else. The telco industry is the last big global industry which still works in 10-year cycles of design generations. And that's a, it's a legacy procedure. It has worked really well in the past and you have to give them a lot of kudos. It's a system which works globally no matter whether you're in the UK, in the United States, in South America, and China, or you know, somewhere in Australia, you are able to make your phone call. Think about it. That's a real achievement, okay? But we need to recognize that we're at the beginning of the 21st century and, and innovation happens so much quicker these days. So we need to break this system up. We cannot work in generations anymore. We have to work in features. So therefore, I believe that 5G will be our last generation game in a sense, and then we will move on. Uh, everybody will be doing different things, which is also much easier from an investment point of view, okay? Because investors pay a lot of money to pay for this clunky thing called 4G or 5G. It's very expensive to deploy the whole system. 
but if you start to actually deploy things in features, then suddenly it becomes uh, an opportunity for investors to hedge their investments, have smaller investments in different baskets, and some things may not work out and other things may work out. So it's, it's from an investment point of view also much more interesting. So, I see. Um, mm. Yes, go ahead. You. Yeah, so that's, that's one of the changes. From a business point of view, I also believe that probably the telecom operators, so the Verizons and the Vodafones and all these companies, may actually go a little bit in the background okay and the reason being is because we will see in the industrial world companies like uh you know ericsson nokia etc uh to take a very strong lead because in the industry world they need to speak a b2b language business business language <clears throat> and they understand that really well so you can see contracts being forged between you know uh ericsson and volvo Okay, so you don't think this could happen between an operator and Volvo simply because they speak very different languages. But you know, Ericsson could just lock themselves in into this industry ecosystem, and then have a much stronger leverage on which which operator to procure. So therefore, that will be visible. And on the other hand, we will have all the consumer-facing companies like Google and Facebook take a much more aggressive stance on connectivity. Because once wireless becomes really like an Ethernet cable, like a, just a, literally it's wireless, it happens to be invisible, but still it's just an Ethernet cable in a sense, then they can start offering really interesting services end to end. And then it will become for them very interesting to be on the front page of your mobile phones. So instead of saying Verizon 4G, it will say Google 5G. You see what I mean? So <laughs> right, right. These are the types of trends I, I, I see happening. And of course, we will be using uh, much more advanced technologies in the near future to make connectivity happen. Just look at Google's access project and Facebook's project. So we will be using the skies, we'll be using drones, uh, we'll be using a lot of AI to predict content which you want to want to consume. Um, so I can pre-cache a lot of that stuff, right? Uh, we will use a lot of AI to predict where's the biggest crowd going to be so we can fly in a drone to provide a lot of capacity, maybe just for 30 minutes. So that type of stuff is coming and will revolutionize the way how we deploy and use uh, this telecom or communication system as, at, at large. That, that Those are such amazing, you know, uh, innovations and uh, changes and transformation that's coming our way. It's uh, very informative. I'm sure our global viewers will, uh, you know, really benefit from what you said just now. Now, digital transformation is at the core of the fundamental changes we see across NGIO in this digital global age. And like in every industry, the end users, consumers of telecommunication industry also are thinking in terms of both products and services from business point of view, from convenience and comfort point of view, speed and efficiency, as well as cost and savings. Now, that wasn't always the case before a few years. And telecommunication industry, I think they didn't see a need to innovate in how they conducted their business or provided products and services or how they innovated. They thought, you know, this is, we are set, you know, we are good to go for, you know, probably next uh, uh, 50 years and they didn't see the need for transformation so while on telecommunications backbone the entities across ngio are able to fundamentally transform is the telecom industry itself making an effort to digitize and meet its users and consumers expectation 
Yeah, that's a good question, and the the answer to that is is I I I would hope they would, but I'm not confident they will. Okay, so I worked in a, in one of the largest telco companies on the planet, and uh, we have tried very hard for years to transform this company from a let's say dumb operator pipe, which just provides a link between the mobile phone and a base station. Um, to a company which also offers services, services which are meaningful, okay? And I'm not quite sure we managed to do that. And that transformation is very painful uh, because it requires transforming skill set, it requires changing people, which as you know is very difficult to do. So there are other companies who just thought, hey, you know, we cannot actually change our labor within the company. So to stay in the innovation cycles, what we do is we spin out ideas. So Deutsche Telekom is good, a good example for that. Um, for good ideas, they don't develop that in-house, they spin this out. Uh, they get essentially, you know, new people, new blood, new investment, and and some of them work, some of them don't. But at least that's something which has a has a certain chance of success. Um, yet other companies try to stay in this innovation cycle by uh, acquiring companies. Okay, so you see then uh, acquisitions in the billions of dollars, and you think, wow, this is really expensive. But if you think about it, it's much cheaper than firing your entire workforce and hiring a new one. Okay, so therefore, uh, acquiring companies which have proven to uh, to be able to execute in a in a new market with a new business model and an innovative product is an attractive solution forward. And American companies uh, have a very strong track record in that, and that's slowly coming eastwards towards you know the United Kingdom, Europe, and and Asia. Um, but in the end of the day, I think that ecosystem will not get around. Uh, innovating itself, okay, and uh, there are a lot of people who recognize that. And uh, in fact, if you if you plot the data rate capabilities over time, and you compare, let's say, cellular with just with Wi-Fi, which is a much more open and quicker type of a community, you see that at any snapshot in time, whether you take 1995 or 2000, 2010 or 2016. Wi-Fi is always uh, one or two orders of magnitude higher in data rate than uh, cellular. Okay, so it therefore it seems to indicate that you know being more open, being less clunky, being less administrative, being more innovative allows you essentially to offer uh, technologies which, in the end, are much better for the consumer. Uh, and therefore, much you know, much more beneficial to the eco economy as a whole. Yes, yes. Now it is said that perhaps the most fundamental change, both in terms of technology and its implication for industry structure, has occurred in the architecture of telecommunication networks. How are and do you agree? And second point is that how are these new digital networks today different as compared to the last few decades? Mm. Yes, yeah, so you know, in fact, I'll tell you a little untold secret on where our capacity comes from. So, uh, the our wireless capacity has increased by a factor of a million about in the last thirty-five years, ever since we kind of started with one G. Okay, and we you will realize when you break it down, um, a factor of five in that one million comes from a better air interface, so the link between my mobile phone and the base station. Okay. A factor of 25 comes from more spectrum, okay? 
and a and a whooping factor of 1,600 comes from smaller cells. All right. So um, my argument has always been, you know, we should have put so much more effort in actually coming up with new architectures which allow us to scale our system much better at the edges, build smaller cells, because that in the end is our only way of meaningfully provide capacity. And it's no magic, because if you look at the Shannon equations, which are some of the fundamental equations governing the maximum capacity which can be delivered, these equations tell you exactly what I just told you, right? So smaller links is the best thing you can do. Um, so therefore, it's the second best, actually. The best thing is to have more spectrum, but spectrum is very expensive. So therefore, having uh, smaller smaller cells is the best thing. Now, the way how cellular is constructed today, you can't really do that. And um, it's because simply a, a, a historical artifact, let me call it almost like this. So um, I'm not sure you will know this or our viewers will know this, but cellular is a very complicated system. So you talk on your mobile phone and that phone communicates with a base station. That base station communicates either with, um, uh, with a microwave link or with a fiber network. Uh, to essentially another fiber network exchange point, and that goes to what we call the, uh, the the serving gateway. And from the serving gateway, we aggregate several serving gateways into a packet gateway, and the packet gateway is the end of the operator's domain, and then it goes out in the internet. Okay. Now, what very few people know is that, for instance, uh, one of our leading operators here in the UK for 4G, they only have five packet gateways for the whole country, okay? So you can imagine that and most of them in the southern part, so close to London. So therefore, um, if you are in Scotland, in Edinburgh, and you're calling your friend on Vodafone, and your friend itself, uh, you're on Vodafone, your friend is on Orange, and then on, on EE, uh, and you may just be five meters apart, right? Literally around the corner, and you're trying to figure out where you are. Um, I'm making the phone call. My phone call is being routed down to London and goes all the way up again to the to Scotland just to, to reach my friend who's five meters beside me. Doesn't make sense, okay? And it doesn't make sense because delay becomes a major issue. We cannot offer the delay criticality which I referred to. So you know, if we want to offer industry compliant and very critical services to industries in 2025. 5G needs to break with this, this core network. The whole thing in the back is called the core network. And the reason we have the core network in, in, in 4G is because we had it in 3G. Okay. And the reason we had it in 3G is because we had it in 2G. Okay. And the reason we had it in 2G is because in 2G's time, nobody believed that the internet would ever be so reliable that we could actually provide quality of service over the lines. You remember these were the years when we were nailing ethernet cables to the walls. So therefore it is an artifact of old times, of times when we did not trust the internet. But the internet, because it was open, just worked so much better, so much more scalable. So today, for instance, in central London, I really struggle to maintain a phone conversation for longer than five minutes uh, simply because then my call is being dropped because there are so many people in central London, okay? Whereas a Skype call or, you know, a Google Hangout or whatever, go to meeting, I can be for one hour on the video call and nothing happens, 
and you tell me what's the better quality of experience, you see? So therefore, getting rid of that core network is both beneficial from a quality of, uh, quality of experience point of view, it's beneficial from a scalability point of view, from an investment point of view. And coming back to your question, you're absolutely right. We need to change the architecture, less so on the front end, more on the back end, which is not visible to the consumer today. Very interesting, very interesting. Now, the range of telecommunication application seems to be broad currently. What telecommunication applications you think are the most relevant for a digital global age to succeed? So clearly, you know, telecommunications in general has allowed um, certain skills to be transmitted, okay? Like educational, just look at this, right? So I'm talking, there's an educational benefit here. We have the the MOOCs, you know, the massive open online courses. I did a very big one and successful one on the Internet of Things. That's all enabled by telecoms in general. So people can watch it wherever they want. I can record it wherever I want, etc. Um, we do other things like phone conferencing, etc. Um, and uh, but the next big thing I believe is is to use all that telecoms infrastructure to actually transmit skill. Okay, and we call that this tactile internet where we're able to transmit touch uh, and motoric movement, as I had alluded to before. So that would allow us essentially to transmit any skill we have anywhere on the planet uh, to any other place on the planet without actually leaving our home place. So not only is that very green and carbon friendly, uh, but also would it balance uh, skill set across the planet. It would help poverty. Uh, it would help with the uh, you know inequality of wealth around the planet. Um, and uh, so I believe that to be the next big paradigm shift where we really need 5G and an extraordinary reliable and low delay network. Yes, I think I agree with you on that. Now, when we look at the telecommunication supply chain, it is complex and very broad. So to ensure security of the digital global age, there is a need to ensure the security of the very complex and global telecommunication supply chain. How secure is the telecommunication supply chain today across nations? Yeah, so uh, you mean security from a cryptographic point of view, yes? So and that, that nobody is able to break into your yes. comms channels, yes. yes. Um, so in theory, all is good, okay? Um, our cryptographic methods are fairly sound. I'm not saying that they are totally secure, but they're fairly sound. Um, and we are able to secure really well what we call point-to-point -point communications, right? So let's say from my mobile to the base station, etc. Now the problems start uh, when you start to zoom out and you look at the system or the system of systems and uh, you have humans in the loop, you have engineers in the loop, who need to provide uh, to make sure that the security is enabled, that the security is really, uh, you know, at its maximum level. And this is typically the weakness of all these security designs globally, you know? So uh, if you look at our recent hacks, which happened in the UK, and I presume you have equivalents in the United States, most of these, if not all of these, are actually caused by uh, human failure in one way or another. Okay, that's what it is. And I personally was involved in the rollout of a very large uh, Internet of Things uh, infrastructure, uh, smart metering, as a matter of fact, 
and the infrastructure was not secured at all, not because we don't have the ciphers on there or no security, but simply because the engineers had to field test it. They put security on zero so they could quickly field test the, the equipment and forgot to put it back, okay? So suddenly the whole infrastructure was not secured. And uh, the same happened with the baby monitors. You may have heard of the scandal where, you know, people hacked into baby monitors and could remotely see children around the planet. Truth is they never hacked into these baby monitors. They just accessed them because people actually didn't switch on security. So therefore having, you know, this type of uh, human in the loop who's not able to properly secure the system, that's a very big threat. What we need here is clearly good models of behavior. We need education. We need the right skill sets. So we're working on that as a, as a community. We're pr producing best practice documents, um, at least to provide this minimal security. Then, of course, you have all that very, very hardcore security where you, you know, some somebody really managed to hack in, etc. That's a different story. But really, this is a this is fringe. Actually, you will be surprised. So there's not a lot of this happening. Having said this, there are lots of threats on the horizon. So one threat which is, uh, I think, very strong is the threat which comes from the quantum world. Okay? So um, quantum computers are able to perform certain operations much quicker than my traditional computer. Okay, And all the security on the planet currently relies on the non-ability to, to defactorate certain prime numbers very quickly. So I could do a brute search on a certain uh, security link. It would take me probably a million years. I would find it. Uh, but, you know, the time is not practical. Now, quantum computers can do it quicker. So I'm not talking about seconds, but it's much quicker. So therefore, once a quantum computer becomes fully operational, and we have suspicion they already are, then the whole security across the planet, not only telecoms, but banking, uh, internet, etc., everything will break down. And uh, we need to be prepared for that. And how the supply chain and everybody will react to this is something which needs to be seen. Uh, maybe blockchain technologies can be helpful. But we are not sure. We just don't know. So there are new technologies on the horizon which could probably help uh, in one way or another, but they've never been tested at scale. We don't know whether they operate at the time horizons we need. A lot of operations have to be done in nanoseconds. So we just don't know, right? So there's a lot of insecurity around security. So your question is actually very, very pertinent. And a lot of governments, I can tell you, are really worried about it. Yeah, they would be. And uh, from what you are saying about quant quantum computers, it is a critical risk facing each and every you know individual as well as each and every NGIO. That is very uh, troubling. So, you do you see any way we can you know manage those kind of securities that are coming our way because of the quantum computers? Yeah. So we need to. So there's clearly no recipe for that, right? So this is all what risk is about. So you need to diminish essentially the the impact if it really comes along. Um, to do soft uh, security and software is one way of doing that because what really would not work is if you need to upgrade security and hardware around the planet. That wouldn't work. So if the quantum computing technology comes around and uh, um, month, one day maybe we have a new protocol, a new security cipher, a new thing, or an algorithm going about it. As long as we can do it in, in software, we can upgrade it. Okay, I can upgrade on my computer, on my mobile phone, etc. So it would work for the majority of our infrastructure, 
but it wouldn't work for one infrastructure which is what I'm really concerned about and that's the infrastructure of the Internet of Things okay so the Internet of Things it's all about sensors and actuators these are very small embedded devices they don't have a keyboard they yeah. don't have a screen they don't have a memory even to hold an antivirus software to do any type of upgrades so imagine we are in the state now 2025 and uh, we have rolled out trillions of these IT devices and suddenly quantum threat is real I don't see, you know, this planet upgrading, going out there, changing physically trillions of IoT devices. So yes. we need to come up with a solution today to be able to prepare for that type of threat in the next 10 years to come. And that's, you know, there's no answer. I, don't, I can't tell you how to do it. Uh, we have several proposals on the table, but we don't understand them enough. We need more research. We need more innovation. And we need to shout loud about it because very few people understand the real threat of that. Yes, you're absolutely right. And I, I, I worry about Internet of Things too. There are, like you said, you know, they are so small and the capacity is so small that we won't be able to do what we are able to do with other computer uh, computers. And that is a very critical risk. Now, when we look at the telecommunication industry itself, when we look back like 150 years back, it seems like energy industry, how energy industry was so critical and uh, so fundamental and it was like a backbone to the industrial age. I think telecommunication industry itself, it has now become a backbone to the digital global age and the coming era of technological superconvergence and possibly a space age in the near future. So this makes it a very critical infrastructure to each and every nation telecommunication industry. Mm -hmm. So mm -hmm. from your observation and understanding, how are nations managing the security risk of this key industry, not from the point that we already discussed, uh, but you know, overall, like you know, any telecommunication infrastructure that mm -hmm. could be uh, a threat Terrorists yeah. could, you know, try to uh, blow that. And uh, if tele telecommunication infrastructure is at risk, then, you know, the whole digitization effort and the whole nation's digital economy would be at risk. So what are what are the steps that nations and its decision makers, key decision makers and governments, they are taking to manage the security risk of this key industry? Mm -hmm. Yes, it's a good and it's a very important question. It's a it's a question of national scale, really. So the answer is staged, really. So clearly, you need to do your due diligence and make sure that the equipment which is being installed is not compromised or compromisable. Um, which we, to be honest with you, we actually don't know. Okay, so from a from an academic point of view, I can tell you that we have absolutely no theory in place today in 2016, which would prove conclusively that a certain line of codes is uh, hackable or non-hackable. That would be actually ideal. So if we could come up with uh, proofs, mathematical proofs, that certain lines of codes can simply not be compromised, um, that would be basically a security, at least on the infrastructure deploying. And I'm mentioning this because we are working on this as a community. So there are my colleagues in the United Kingdom, and I presume also in the United States and globally to come up with these formal proofs. And I think they're very, very important and they become more and more important as we start to automate uh, stuff which is, you know, just out in the consumer world, like uh, self-driving cars.
Um, you don't want anybody to hack into the cars and just crash it or hack into an airplane and just crash it. So suddenly, you know, it becomes very vital to have these type of formal proofs, which we don't have yet. But we're working on that and I have confidence that we're getting there. Good, the other good. thing which clearly the, um, uh, the ecosystem wants to ensure is that we are not anymore uh, after the most efficient system, but we are after the most resilient system, okay? And it is resilience in the most general term, resilience not only taking into account the physical infrastructure, but also the people who services and the people who use it and the people who would possibly attack that. And that's something we also work quite a lot here at King's College London and in, in, in the UK uh, because we have a very strong uh, uh, um, uh, policy institute here, a very strong cyber cybersecurity and a very strong uh, war studies department, which works a lot with your uh, Department of Defense, by the way. So uh, and here with the national government as well. So to come up with a very resilient uh, solution, that's really what it is. And that would mimic essentially the way also how our brain works. So if you look at our brain, um, our brain is not efficient actually in, the, in, in a sense, right? It could actually store so much more information or do so many more things, but it's extremely resilient. Okay, if I, hit, if I bang my head, uh, my head doesn't stop working simply because my neurons are so heavily uh, linked, etc that if I lose a few billion, it's not the end of my career. And that really is how systems are structured and this is how cities are also structured. Look at, you know, uh, London. If I had a very efficient city, then uh, my way to work would only be one route of commute, which probably from a uh, cost point of view would be the best thing to do. But if that single point of failure, this one route breaks down, I just cannot go to work anymore. And suddenly, you know, in London, the good thing is it's not a very efficient city, but it's a very resilient city. So I have at least another five ways to go to work. Uh, and with security, we need to make sure that same thing happens. A very resilient infrastructure, uh, no single point of failure, neither from a comms point of view, nor from a database point of view. Uh, nor, nor from a cryptographic ownership point of view. So we just need to make sure we have enough plan Bs and plan Cs, which are actionable if plan A fails. Yes, now you made a very important point that we do need to work towards developing cyber resiliency, geo resiliency, as well as, you know, space resiliency, so that even if, you know, there is an attack, you know, it could be in cyberspace, it could be in geospace or from space, you know, we are resilient to that. And even if, let's say, they succeed in the attack, that we are able to quickly recover without having any significant, you know, damage or uh, gap in the time that we are able to, you know, get back on the internet so though i hope that you know each nation is able to work towards that and uh, are able to achieve that resiliency now telecommunication is believed to be a very important component of the broader it industry where processing information processing the information or data that transform or change information or storage that allows communication of information from point a to point b and communications to transmit information from you know uh, point A to point B, so there are there are three aspects: processing, storage, and communication. How secure is the processing, storage, and communication from your assessment? So again, it's um, as long as the the human engineers have done the uh, the right design, um, it is reasonably secure. Okay. Mm -hmm. So um, it turns out that the telecom backend isn't very secure. So because people back then 
didn't pay a lot of attention in the sense they thought that this infrastructure is anyway owned by very specific companies where nobody would have access to that. So it turns out that certain paths uh, in the way in the telco infrastructure and the core network uh, are crackable, so you could get into that. Um, but generally, you know, the information is secure, um, even in the databases, as long as you keep information, you know, uh, encrypted, uh, you keep information hashed, you make sure that you don't store personal, uh, financial and technical data in the same database. <clears throat> So these are things which are very obvious to you, very obvious to me, but still big companies make this mistake. So one of our uh, uh, ISPs and service providers here in the UK was recently hacked because they didn't actually encrypt in their back end the user information nor their bank details. Okay, And that's kind of the first obvious thing to do. And in fact, even though it's not hard regulated, it's soft regulated, uh, but for some reason nobody checked it and therefore a simple a simple attack onto the system, into the servers, into the caches allowed essentially to extract a lot of information. So again, if you really abide by the, uh, by let's say a code of conduct for using security protocols, you're reasonably secure. Okay, reasonably secure. You always have attacks, and they are, you know, they're companies like F5 Networks who provide very good security, periphery security. Uh, Cisco does a lot of security, Jupyter Networks. So there's a lot of companies really taking care of that. But their efforts are completely useless if somebody just switches off encryption in the back end. You see what I mean? So uh, therefore, we have to act as a really as a, as a community here to make sure that there's no weakest link. Yes, very, very true. Now, across nations, each industry will be coming at the digital transformation or will be going for digital transformation from a different starting point, depending on the maturity, strategic positioning and collective aspirations of each and every, you know, nation, its government, industries, organizations, academia and also individuals. So it's more like a collective effort, collective vision, collective aspirations. What is the digital transformation baseline? for each NGIO that the bare minimum each nation and its components need to have to succeed in a digital global age. Mm -hmm. So, yeah, it's it's a good question. It's maybe more a question to the United Nations. But, you know, I just had uh, one of the uh, Indian ministers with me today. So we discussed that, for instance, for, for a country like India, which is a country which is a um, and you might be very familiar with it as, you know, widespread essentially of uh, ability. So on one hand, you've got the richest people on the planet with the best connectivity and technology. And uh, on the other hand, you have a large population which is, uh, which is quite poor and doesn't get all, all these services. Um, look, I think digital is slowly coming into the, the, the category of basic human rights. Okay, very basic human rights like water, like, uh, you know, uh, shelter. And uh, it is simply because it enables today so many things and not least what I uh, alluded to at the very beginning, our identity. And uh, if digital isn't there, your identity is very diff different. And um, if you zoom out, and I deal now a lot with people from the United Nations, it turns out that a, a, a good a good amount of people born every day on this planet doesn't have an identity in any way, right? So digital 
should be the basis of uh, giving that identity in one way or another. What type of technology we use is a different question. What type of, you know, government stands behind this? It doesn't really matter. I think the basic, uh, digital, basic digital means must be provided to cater for that uh, human identity of that uh, human being in the 21st century. Yes, 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 you are absolutely right on that. We do need to create that uh, ability to have that. Now, telecommunication, let's talk about the investment perspective of this. Telecommunication is a capital intensive industry. But from what I you know, read and the reports that the returns are on capital declined in the 1990s and they still haven't picked up as it should have according to you know many reports that are out there. How would that impact the investment in this industry today and the innovation cycle in the coming years? Mm. Yeah, so there's there's no surprise in a sense, right? So we had um, the the um, the telco industry is becoming commodity industry, and uh, as with any commodity industry, you know your margins are declining over time. That's what it is. It's just the laws of an open market. So therefore, your uh, let's say your your returns on investment um, are diminishing over time. <clears throat> uh, from an opportunity point of view, so you know in economics we like to talk about the opportunity cost. That means as an investor, if I'm being asked to invest a billion dollars into telecoms or a billion dollars into something new like blockchain or whatever, right? Um, then it turns out that probably the opportunity cost of telecoms will be negative. So it's not worth doing it because simply there is another opportunity which is better and bigger and faster growing than telecoms. Now, but that does not mean that you don't make any profits and it does not mean that this industry is poor. Okay, it is just uh, not the fat Ferrari low hanging fruit industry it used to be. It's become a commodity industry, which is also a good thing because it means it will stay here for a very, very long time to come. And the margins will probably be around two, three, maybe 5%. But this is really on a global budget of trillions of dollars. So, you know, we, it's not it's not a bad deal in a sense. OK, um, now from an investment point of view, uh, there are a lot of investment companies who specialize in this long term, uh, fairly low return uh, type of industry simply because also it's a very stable return so you know you know it will not fail simply because it's global it's something we all need so therefore is very little you can do wrong really and uh, you know guys like well Warren Buffett is very specialized in investing the other investment houses here in the UK who are very good at that um, so I'm not particularly worried about the investment story globally but um, as I said at the beginning I'm really worried about the ever-increasing bill and the ever, you know, the, the, the long cycles between the investments, essentially. Um, therefore, breaking up the telco infrastructure into a world where we only do features, I think is the, the only way forward, really, to make sure that, you know, the investors can hedge their investment. We have a quicker turn cycle, so we're not talking anymore 10, 15 years, but we're talking maybe just a few years because suddenly we will get be able to actually piggyback on a totally new league of investors which currently we cannot do uh, which would also help with the scalability of the technology um, so that's really the story what it is there's no magic from this point of view we really understand what's going on and uh, we just need to see how the industry will react to that 
Yes, that is true. But there's so much competition also, you know, uh, Misha, that there is smart cities and smart enterprises and smart, uh, all kinds of smart initiatives on top of Internet of Things and, you know, artificial intelligence. So uh, there's a lot of, uh, com you know, different uh, innovation opportunities that investors have to choose from and to, you know, see where is the potential for higher returns. Now, a maturing Internet of Things environment will also hinge upon a widening technology mix. A range of standards will be needed for machine to machine ecosystems. Uh, and from what other, you know, uh, developments, uh, the emerging uh, super convergence, you know, are is going to bring to uh, each and every nation, each and every investor. So, this means that moving now to place the right investment in the right technologies is very complex and very, uh, you know, confusing for many investors because the, the, at the rapid pace by at which the technology changes, at the rapid pace which, uh, you know, the innovations are coming out, the new ideas are coming out. So for any investor to think about or evaluate from a perspective that whatever technology or innovation they're trying to invest right now, whether there would be a need for it in the coming years, like in five years or two years, because mm -hmm. there are so many rapid technological changes. So how do they you know, decide what do you, based on what analysis they decide where should the investment go? Yeah. So. You know what I tell the investors I advise is uh, something very simple. You know, you need to you need to understand where not where the need is, but where the demand will be, because most likely the need is everywhere. So we had a need for Internet of Things uh, 2000 before B BC, right? So um, there was also always a need for Internet of Things, but it doesn't mean there's a demand. Um, in fact, I would argue, you know, I'm. I'm the co-founder of one of the biggest Internet of Things companies on the planet, World Sensing, and the, I, I would argue that even in 2016, um, there's very little demand for the Internet of Things, and it is demand which pays your bill, which makes your business, and not the need. The need, we always had the need for the Internet of Things, right? Um, and demand is something which takes time. Uh, I like to equal that like, to a, a good bottle of wine, okay? So a good wine needs to... <laughs> yes. Uh, with demand. So people shouldn't panic. So, you know, with the, with the Internet of Things, when it finally came onto the agendas of all the corporates and the governments, suddenly everybody was panicking and saying, we need more standards. It's not taken off because there are not enough standards, etc. It turns out we had a lot of standards. We had a lot of upstream supply chain, a lot of technologies. But of course, we had nothing in the downstream on the demand side. So give it time, it will take off and everything will happen. Now, it doesn't necessarily help you now with the investment story in a sense. So uh, clearly the investors need to separate a little bit the, uh, let's say, the underlying connectivity technology from the from all the opportunity space which is on top. And, and let me take again the Internet of Things space because it's a, it's a good example, it's happening today. So let's let's look at that. So from a connectivity point of view, you know, we, we try to connect different, we try to use different technologies to connect our billions of sensors. Some of them didn't work and we developed them for a long time. Others are now emerging like low power wide area networking technologies, but they're not really standardized, right? So they really go through a very proprietary ecosystem, they have business model behind which maybe don't work. So I put my cards in technologies which are standardized. So cellular will probably be able 
to support Internet of Things one day. So we will have, you know, the radio we use today to make a cellular phone calls to connect the mobile, uh, sorry, the Internet of Things. But the, with the difference is that I need to recharge my iPhone twice a day. And that sensor will live uh, most likely 10 years on a single small battery, right? So we can do that, no problem. And we can leverage on all the other infrastructure which is already deployed uh, around the planet. So if I'm an investor and I see a company which is offering a solution which most likely will get into this uh, standardized way, whether that is IEEE and Wi-Fi or 3GBP and cellular, I would invest. Okay, I would invest because it's future proof. We will need it. It's not a crazy growth story, but it's growth story which uh, Warren Buffett would love because it's something in 10 years which gives you good return. Which is the reason why Huawei acquired Newell, a British company, for $25 million because they've done exactly that move. Okay. Now, when we come to the uh, opportunity space, so the data level, uh, AI, uh, you know, back end, front end platforms, uh, turnkey solutions, etc., then um, then of course the bed is a little bit it's a little bit different because um because uh, these platforms need data to survive and you will see you know to build a an iot data platform is not easy but it's not difficult so you see a lot of these companies coming they have investment they live for three years but then there's no demand so they they basically die uh so the big game now is, is in this community who will be able to to get enough cash to survive the next three four years to survive essentially the demand side, uh, you know, uh, drought in the sense and, and, and get on, really be the right market position when you take off, when the demand really takes off. So therefore, investors need to understand that there will be no quick return on any new technology because either it's something which just really grows naturally, uh, organically, very slowly, or you really need to wait until the demand picks up, okay? Um, you hear of success stories like a company being bought for whatever, $200 million, etc. But these are kind of fake acquisitions in a sense, talent acquisitions, political acquisitions. So, but, uh, you know, the real success stories and the Internet of Things, you still need to wait a little bit. So, unfortunately, it takes a little bit of time. No magic. This is what it is. Yes, yes. The innovation cycle, you know, it has to go through its own phases. So, Yes, so Misha, this is the last question. I have taken so much of your time. Yeah, I know you're a very busy person. So uh, the increased integration of information and communication technology into the daily activities of each and every nation, its government, industries, organizations, academia, and individuals, along with the corresponding growth of cyberspace has been a major driver of economic growth and productivity each uh, across uh, each and every nation. But just as cyberspace has created unprecedented opportunities for economic growth, it has also created unprecedented opportunities for criminals. What is the impact of digital communication on global economy and global warfare? Yeah, so there, there, there it's a massive impact, really. Okay, it's a massive impact, and. Um, I, I like to, you know, compare, to give you the example of a bank robbery, let's say, you know, 100 years ago, which was a gun, somebody coming into a, a bank, taking physical cash and maybe killing somebody on the road, and you would see, uh, you know, there, there are traces left. Now, in the digital world, you just don't see these gangsters anymore. They don't kill directly. Let's say the bank, if somebody robs, you know, a billion dollars out of the bank, um, digitally there's nobody will suffer from that physically uh, but the traces left are much weaker 
Uh, there's still traces. We call them the digital traces. And, um, you know, we are working a lot on being able to build forensics around it. It's a totally new science of forensic to be able to to trace essentially certain uh, uh, intrusions, whether it's a bank or that's the nuclear power plant or that is uh, MI6 or the White House. So that forensics needs to be developed. And um, we, we all struggle because the natural body to take care of that is the police because some type of crime has been committed and naturally they're the ones who are responsible for that. But police is uh, traditionally trained uh, driving through the, uh, the streets physically, right? So they are not really trained to actually do something digitally. And actually, if you look at most developed countries, the police budget is being cut. So they are asked to do more with less in a space which is totally new to them. So that's a big challenge and politicians need to recognize that, that that's a new type of crime, it's a new type of threat, um, which requires very special task force, new resources. Um, it's a threat where potentially the harm can be massive because if somebody breaks into the nuclear power plant then you know no matter what type of guards you have in front no matter how many electric fences you build around you can still blow it up from any point in the world and that's a massive problem um on the other hand you know digital means if you have gone in we might be able to trace you back so we can we can find essentially where people have uh, actually executed their, 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 their intrusion from. The banks maybe, so everybody's now talking a lot of bank robberies, the digital ways of extracting money. Of course, that money uh, flows somewhere. We know where that money goes as a financial back-end system. So we can basically retract that money back into the original account. So it's easier in a sense. To, to deal with these massive threats and uh, um, and to go about it. So therefore, you know, on one hand, the potential to cause uh, havoc is much bigger and we need to recognize that. We need to work on that. We need to be prepared. We need to make risk mitigation. On the other hand, it's not as bleak as uh, some people make us believe. So there are a lot of opportunities um, to essentially use digital also to for the for the wider benefit and also tracing all these crimes yes very true very true misha now misha thank you so much for appearing on risk roundup i learned a lot from what you had to say today and i'm sure our global viewers and listeners also you know have, would learn a lot uh, from what you had to say and it would give them you know a lot to think so thank you so much again for appearing on risk roundup thank you thanks for the invite goodbye the transformative power of communication is visible across nations as the global web of economic interconnections between and across NGIO is growing larger and more complex thanks to digital communication. As entities across NGIOA try to transform their initiatives and businesses to the needs of a digital global age and remake themselves, it needs to be understood that any change goes through a series of phases. An understanding of risk and reward is fundamental to any transformation. Managing such transformative and disruptive change without understanding of strategic risk is like driving without awareness of stop signs. Not even the best tools and techniques can make up for risks that are not identified and understood. Risk management 
is the bridge between risk and reward. So risk group cybersecurity risk research center and strategic security risk research center are created for this very purpose to identify, evaluate and manage the risk facing NGIOA in CTS, that means nations, government, industries, organizations, academia in cyberspace, geospace and space and discuss, debate and define necessary framework, structure, processes, tools and technologies to manage the security risk of not only the digital global age, but also of the coming technological superconvergence. We at Risk Group believe that risk management, security and peace walk together hand in hand. Though security is related to management of threats and peace to the management of conflict, risk management is related to management of security vulnerabilities as well as management of conflict. And it is not possible to conceive any one of the three without the existence of the other two. All three concepts feed into each other. We believe that the security we build for ourselves is precarious and uncertain until it is secure for everyone across nations. Tradition becomes our security. So if we build a culture of managing risk effectively, it will lead us to security and security will lead us to peace. Let's manage the existing emerging risk together. For more information on the risk roundups, to watch the risk roundup videos or hear the risk roundup podcast, please go to riskgroupllc.com and do not forget to subscribe and share. Until next time, I'm Jayashree Pandya, host of Risk Roundup, signing off. See you next time. Thank you.